well. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. And I know I've been speaking there from uh, Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to skip that for a couple of weeks as we take a look here at the season that we're in, which is really the season of Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter. Patty, would you mind just handing me my uh, remote control there? I forgot to bring it up. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thanks. See, she's a helper. It's great. You know, we are celebrating in the church calendar Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is a, is a kind of a unique day in so many ways because you have two things happening at the same time. You know, as you read the story, on the, on the surface, it's a day of celebration. It's a day of great joy. And yet underneath, there's a, there's a tremendous uh, storm and darkness approaching. And it's so interesting that Jesus, as he's coming from the Mount of Olives down into the city of Jerusalem, and the crowds are, are you know, stating Hosanna. We'll talk a little bit about what that means. Jesus, prior to that moment, had been sitting up there on the Mount of Olives. And some of us were just recently in Israel, and we were sitting way up on the Mount of Olives in the, uh, and looking down over the city. And there's a point where Jesus is now looking over the city. And the Bible says this in Luke's Gospel. We'll get back to Matthew, but... In Luke's gospel, he says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over the city. Because Jesus realized, number one, that as he's coming in and he's announcing his kingdom, his kingdom that he's been bringing to the nation of Israel, and not only his kingdom to that nation, but to the kingdoms of this world, he recognizes that the majority of people are not going to get it. They don't understand it. And he foresees, because of the hardness of their heart and their rejection of God himself coming to save them, that judgment was the outcome of the situation. So Jesus could not only see his own upcoming crucifixion and death, but he saw what was about to happen in the days, about 30 years from the time that he was looking over that city. And he says, if even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. In other words, Jesus is come to bring, he's the Prince of Peace, he's come to bring peace, but they're rejecting this offer. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and you will be hemmed in on every side. In other words, there's gonna be a war siege around the city of Jerusalem and that's exactly what happened 30 years later. Yeah, the Romans who had conquered that area the Jews now rebelled against them in 66 AD, and in 70 AD, they now had encircled the city of Jerusalem, and it's a terrible situation. And Jesus then says to them 30 years before, they're gonna dash you to the ground, and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You had an opportunity. There was a day of visitation. God had offered you peace, but you had pushed it aside, and you were left with the outcome of it. Now, here's a picture of the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And you can see that there's uh, gravestones there just as you're getting up towards the walls. All of those trees in front of it, that's a little bit of the Garden of Gethsemane. So when you're coming down the Mount of Olives, you're actually walking through the Garden of Gethsemane. It's kind of interesting. And here's a picture around the temple area. When, they, when the Romans destroyed it, they literally leveled the whole ground and pushed 
all of the stones, one on top of the other, and they pushed it over what they called a retaining wall. Some of you probably have seen pictures of the Western Wall. Jewish people are worshiping, crying, praying there. This is uh, a little picture on the, a little ways from the Western Wall on the southern side. And what they have done here, the archaeologists, when they were digging this up, they actually left those great big stones there. You can see them right there on the end, way at the far end. I'll just go back. Maybe it's a better picture. Way back there. They left the stones just as they had found them. All those stones had fallen over. The rest of the area, they just, you know, they, ex they took all those stones away so you could actually see. But isn't that something that you can actually see historically? This isn't just something that's in the Bible like, uh, maybe this is going to happen. No, this is a historical fact that occurred after Jesus had said these things. Now, I want to fast forward three decades after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Now the Roman army has surrounded the city, and Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, is telling the stories, an eyewitness to this account. He says, you could, have, you, you could have thought the hill on which the temple stood was boiling from the bottom upwards, that everywhere was a mass of flames, and there lay a sea of blood deeper than the fire, and there were more killed than killers. In other words, the, the soldiers were far less than the people they were destroying. You could not see a single piece of ground anywhere because it was so th thickly covered with bodies. This is a terrible massacre, forcing the soldiers to climb over them in order to reach further victims. I can't even imagine... You know, this is why Jesus was crying, by the way. This is what Jesus was seeing and why he was weeping over the city. Most of the non-combatants in the precinct stayed behind, however, climbing up into the outer colonnade, which was 12 feet wide, and some priests were now tearing railings from the sanctuary to hurl down at the soldiers. As the sanctuary had been destroyed, the legionnaires could see little point in preserving the other temple buildings, so they torched the lot, including what was left of the colonnades and the gates. They lit fires beneath uh, the terrified people that were cowering on top of the outer colonnade, mainly women and children, many of whom jumped to their death to escape the flames. And Josephus says that was about 6,000 who perished in this way. That's a real sad story. You know, they had taken refuge here because earlier in the day, another so-called prophet had told them, go up on the temple where you'll receive the sign of your deliverance. So they, they were basically deluded into thinking this would happen. See, they weren't listening to the actual message of God, and now they were destroyed. Josephus points out the citizens of Jerusalem who perished during the siege were the lucky ones. While the Romans were deciding what to do with their captives, 11,000 of them inside the temple ruins died from hunger. They had, didn't have enough food to feed them. Some of them refused to eat. Others, they deliberately starved. And as Josephus says... There were just too many prisoners. He goes on, although the prisoners were dying in countless cruel ways, not only from this experience, but later the captives, they were taken and they were used in gladiatorial games. Animals devoured them. This was a terrible situation. So the triumphal entrance of Jesus, there was, in Jesus' mind, there was a dark hue to it. The rest of the people didn't see that. They were just locked into their expectation. And how many here in this room, you can honestly say this, that most, for most of us, we lock into a certain expectation of life. Isn't that true? And, you know, I'm, I'm a very optimistic person. I think that's good. I think we should be optimistic. But, you know, sometimes we think God's going to do certain things or this is the way my life should go. And when it doesn't turn out that way, we get really upset. Isn't that true? And yet God may have a totally different thing in mind. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a moment here. See, they were thinking... 
And you can understand why they would think this way. They knew in their history that as a nation of slaves, they had been delivered from the greatest force on earth. At that time, Egypt was the greatest power on earth. They were delivered from the kingdom of Egypt. And that kingdom, in the crossing of the Red Sea, those soldiers were destroyed. God had preserved them. So they had in their mind, God is a deliverer. How many know God is a deliverer? But in their expectation, they assumed that God was going to deliver them from the Roman Empire. They were going to deliver them from their Roman overlords. That's what they were excited about. Do you know what Jesus had in mind? He had in mind something far more significant than that. How many would think to be delivered in a particular moment of time from a particular political oppression would be one thing, but to be delivered from sin, which is our greatest enemy and which ultimately leads to death, for all generations is actually an even greater deliverance than to be delivered in time from a certain element of oppression. How many see the difference? So when Jesus came, he didn't just come to deliver them from you know, the Roman oppression. He came to deliver all of humanity for all time from death and sorrow and tears and sickness and broken relationships and the problems that we deal with inside of our own soul called sin and all of the addictions that go with it. Well, that's a tremendously more profound and powerful thing. In Matthew 21, 1 to 19, he records for us the events surrounding this triumphal procession. And he's here today. So you go, yeah, that's interesting. That happened historically. But what does that have to do with you and me in the 21st century? And this is where I want to make the application today. We are continuously today confronted, just as they were, with who is Jesus and how should we respond to him? And there's really only two responses, and we're going to see it in the story. In, in, uh, here we find there's you know, four things that Matthew actually reveals to us about Jesus. Number one is the certainty that Jesus fulfills all that the prophets in the Old Testament spoke about him. Jesus came to fulfill uh, these verses. Let's pick up the story here in Matthew 21, verse 1. It says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And what was spoken through the prophet, Matthew now quotes, from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fold of a donkey. Now, most ancient peoples, when they conquered a nation, they didn't come riding on a donkey. They came riding on a war horse. But here's Jesus come riding on a donkey. And a donkey was a symbol of peace. As a matter of fact, earlier in their history, under King David, Solomon, King David's son, was crowned the king, and he came riding on a donkey. And so this was not something foreign in their thinking. So Jesus is now portraying himself as their king. By the way, this whole idea of Christ, Jesus Christ, the Hebrew is Jesus the Messiah. It's the same word. Greek is Christ, Messiah is the Hebrew rendition of it. So Jesus is now coming, and the word Messiah actually means, and Christ means, anointed one. Christ is not Jesus' surname. I'm just pointing that out. It means that Jesus is the anointed one of God. He's the king that the Father has sent. And actually, Jesus is actually God himself coming to us 
in the person of Christ. It's very powerful. And he says he's coming to bring salvation. And he's gentle and he's riding on a colt. So this is not a, uh, a warrior type of situation. And you say, well, why would the Jews then get so excited seeing him riding on a, a donkey, seeing him as the one that was going to destroy the Romans? How many understand that God has power. If he created the universe, he created the, the heavens and the earth. I mean, he can take care of a, you know, some problems like that. And the Jewish people understood that. So they had no problem believing that. Jesus is now making this public de de declaration. This gesture of Jesus going public with his kingship has two responses. One is one of celebration and the other is of outrage and indignation. One was the fulfillment of a lofty aspiration. The other is a threat to the power base of the Jewish leadership at that time. The people felt the freedom that Jesus was bringing. The religious leaders felt a loss of control and therefore we read of their indignation and anger. It says here, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. See, the son of David is the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna literally means save now. They were saying, save us now. Save us. Luke tells us that the Pharisees spoke to Jesus. These were the religious leaders and they said, rebuke your disciples and Jesus said, hey, listen, if I tell them to be quiet, even the rocks will cry out. So there was a sense, Jesus is not going to suppress them because actually they were right. He was the king. He was fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. But let me move on uh, and say this, to apply it to our day today. Isn't it true today that when Jesus comes, people who long to be free rejoice and those who refuse to surrender to him resist? I mean, there's only two options about Jesus. You either embrace him or you reject him. You either worship him or you ignore him. Only two response. Second thing that we see is Jesus creates a heart of celebration. You know when Jesus comes into a person's life, he changes us on the inside out. He transforms the brokenness in our lives. He transforms the anger, the addictions. He starts breaking into the place where, you know, where we're isolating and uh, we have difficulty in relationships. Jesus wants to bring healing into our lives from the inside out. It's not a change that we try to be good enough. No, God's spirit comes into our life and begins to transform our hearts. And I've been sharing this recently in our church and trying to get it across to us. When the Hebrew people talked about the heart, that's the essence of who you are. It's your mind, emotions, your will. It's all of you. So when the Bible says, give me your heart, when God is asking us to give our hearts to him, he's saying, give me your life. Give me who you are and I'll transform your, your sinful nature. I will bring my nature inside of you and begin this transformative work in your life. Jesus is about to bring this transformation. So it says, verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Now that word stirred, see this is a, you know, an English translation from the Greek New Testament text. The word there for stirred is the word seismic. Now when I say the word seismic, what comes to your mind? Earthquake, earthquake right? 
And we're talking about the, the, the state of the trembling or the shaking. So the whole community was shaken by the presence of Jesus. And you say, well, why would they be so, uh, you know, excited about Jesus coming? Well, let me just point out to something. That, you know, when we read these texts in isolation, they don't always make sense. But let's go back six days earlier. Jesus was in the area. He had a friend named Lazarus. Lazarus had died and had been dead for four days. Jesus had been further north, and he came down and heard about Lazarus' death, and the Bible says, and Jesus wept in John chapter 11 and verse 35. And then Jesus did something very powerful. He said to them, roll the stone away. He was already buried for four days. How many know in a hot culture, you know, something's happening to a body after four days? How many know what's happening? He's deteriorating, right? He's decomposing. And so Jesus said, no, roll the stone away. And Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus, what did they say to Jesus? They said, hey, better not do that. He's going to smell. You know, they were concerned about, you know, the kind of the practical side of this. Jesus says, listen, I'm the resurrection and the life. They said, yeah, we know that, you know, you're the resurrection and the life. But they thought about it as a future thing. Can I make a declaration to you right now? God is. He's in the present. There's no time with him. And so he spoke to Lazarus in the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come out. And here he does, he's all wrapped up in his grave clothes. He starts bounding out of the, the grave site, you know, because they don't bury them. They weren't being buried six feet under. He was buried in the side of a, a little uh, mound there, and the stone was rolled over. That's how the Jews buried their dead in that rocky climate of Israel. So here Lazarus comes bounding out. Now, how many know it's quite an impressive thing that somebody who's been dead for four days starts showing up? Does anybody know that kind of hits? You know, I don't know if they had a newspaper system, but I'm sure everybody was talking about it. And where he was from, Bethany, was only about two miles from Jerusalem. So word had spread that Jesus had literally raised someone from the dead after four days. Now, you have to remember, for three and a half years, what is Jesus doing? He's raising the dead. He's healing the sick. People that were lame could walk. People that couldn't see could now see. People who were deaf could hear. I mean, he was a well-known entity in that region and so there was such a buzz and so there was that sense that this was the moment that Jesus was going to come and and you know now declare that he was the anointed one the Messiah and actually Jesus did that that's what Palm Sunday is about he's making that declaration but in their mind they see it as the overthrow of Rome Jesus is saying no you have a misunderstanding I'm coming here to die for you so that I can deliver you from your sins totally different picture powerful isn't it it says when the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb, raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to see him or to meet him. How many go, I want to meet the guy that just raised somebody from the dead? I mean, you know, like this was creating a stir in the city of Jerusalem. Luke describes the crowd's response as a result of the miracles that they had seen. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Let me move on to the third thing that Matthew reveals about Jesus, is that when Jesus comes, a cleansing transpires. Now, I'm going to just briefly say this, that when Jesus went into the city of Jerusalem, Mark and Matthew record that he went in and then he came out. And nothing happened that day. There was a closing toward the end of the day. It was the next day that Jesus came in. So we know that the, the day that Jesus came in, the next day, he cleansed the temple. Remember, he threw all of the money changers' tables around? Now, that was not a spontaneous action, folks. That was not Jesus, you know, I'm irked by this bad behavior. He had been there many times before. This is a prophetic act. 
He's basically showing them that you've made my house, rather than a place of prayer and a place where people could connect with God, you've made it a den of thieves. And we read that in um, Matthew's gospel. It says here, Matthew 21, verse 12, then Jesus entered the temple area, drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the table of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he said, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Now, isn't that powerful? He was just basically saying, you know what, this was happening, there's different courts in the temple area. This was called the court of the Gentiles. What was going on was these people were actually ripping people off in, in the guise of religion. By the way, does that happen today? All the time. That's happening all the time. It's happened all, all through the generations. By the way, what does God think of it? He's disgusted by it. He's angry by it. We see it because the person of Christ is actually what the heart of the Father is. It's God's attitude. God says, I hate this because it's impeding people. It's keeping people from actually coming to know God. And God gets angry by that. And we can see that in the story. But you know, we can look at that story and go, well, that's past tense, Pastor. That's, that doesn't affect me today. But let me point out something. When you and I give our lives to Christ, what happens inside of us is Paul says, we're, our body now becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the temple that's been destroyed is not a big issue because God's not living in, in, a, in a building made by human hands. God's living inside of the human heart of people who surrender to him. God's spirit comes inside of us and we become God's temple. So how does that apply to you and I? Well, you and I can actually become very careless in our Christian life and we begin to do all kinds of things we shouldn't be doing. And all of a sudden we're saying we're a Christian with our mouths, but our activities and actions are totally off base. We're ripping people off, we have bad relationships, we're slandering, gossiping, you know, we go on and on, all this bad behavior. And then the person who's trying to get to know God looks at that behavior and says, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't wanna be one. If that's what it means to know God, it doesn't change anybody's life. How many know it's bad advertisement? How many know God does not like bad advertisement? So what is he saying to us? Hey, I want to cleanse your heart. I want to change what's wrong inside of you. I want to do a deep work inside of your life. I want you to be pleasing. All right? Now, I'm going to zip through here a little bit. Let's get here. Now, I love this prayer that's found in the Psalms. And I'll tell you why I like it. Because deep down inside, most of us in this room, we don't really know what we're really like. You think you know your heart. I think I know my heart. But you know, there's blindness in our lives. There's things that people see about me that I don't see about myself. Anybody ever pick, point something out and you go, that's not true about me, is it? Other people go, yeah, it is. You know, I'm blind to that. But here's the really scary part. Do you realize that in all of our lives, there's things that I can't see about myself, nor can you see about me that only God sees? And some of those things are, may not be right. And that's why the psalmist made this amazing prayer. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What a powerful prayer. I'm gonna tell you, you pray this prayer could be scary because God could show you something about yourself and you go, really? I'm really like that? I'm being honest. You ever prayed this prayer? I've prayed this prayer and all of a sudden you go, wow, there's not good behavior on my part here. God's showing, well, it's been there all along. Now we're cleaning it up. God wants to deal with our hearts. He wants to bring cleansing inside of our lives. Okay, let me move on to the final point here. 
is the condemnation that a rejection of Christ brings. Now, I want to say something to all of us here. God is not here to condemn us. See, that's a misunderstanding. Our culture misunderstands. People think that God's condemning. Can I just destroy that for a minute? God doesn't condemn us. As a matter of fact, it states it so clearly. God is deeply in love with us because we are the crowning achievement of his creation. We are the glory. We're the, we're the, we're the element in this whole created world that's the most like him. You and I are reflecting the image of God. Man is the ultimate pinnacle of God's creation. He's even given us some of himself. He's breathed into us. We become a living spirit, but he he actually imparts something of his nature inside of us so that human beings, we actually create, we reason, we think, we have a will. It's powerful. And so God deeply loves us. How many know that when you create something as a creator and you, you create something to such a great and high degree, you don't want to destroy that. You're just rejoicing over it. But something went wrong. Because he gave us a will, anytime you give somebody the choice, they can choose the right thing or the wrong thing. And when humanity chooses to sin against God, it actually, actually mars or diminishes the image of God in our lives. And so this is what John writes. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him him through Christ. Isn't that beautiful? So what God has done is he said, listen, I know you guys have messed up as humanity, but I still love you, and I'm going to create a plan that I can redeem you from your sin. I'm going to deliver you from that mess, and I'm going to begin to restore this work of, of my created nature inside of you. I'm going to even put some more of my nature inside of you. Isn't that powerful? By my spirit. So he says, I didn't come to destroy this world. I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world because of his great love. But whoever, it says, believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. In other words, condemnation comes to us. It's already there. It comes to us because we're violating God's laws. And we live under condemnation, and we live under guilt, and we live in shame. And a lot of people are living in guilt and condemnation and shame that Jesus wants to set them free from. That's true. You know? You know why we struggle so much with this idea that God is going to judge humanity? Do you know why we struggle with that idea? Because we have God on trial. That's why. We say, what do you mean God's on trial? We evaluate God according to our values. And how many know our values are getting more twisted all the time as a culture? You know, God is transcendent. What does that mean, Pastor? It means that he's beyond our thoughts and ways. He's, be, he's above us. He's beyond us. He's, he's infinite. We're finite. He's eternal. You know, we can only have eternal life because he imputes it to us. He gives it to us. That's the only way. God is everlasting. Or sorry, God is evaluating all of our lives based on his standards. And we either do one of two things. We either surrender to God or we rebel against God. That's the only two responses in the, see, we we think there's all these roads and all these ways. I go, no, no, it's real simple. We're either yielding or resisting. We're either surrendering or we're rebelling. Only two options. We're trying to complicate the matter. You see, think about it this way. You know, sometimes as a Christian, we go, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I'm doing God's will. You ever thought about the prayer that Jesus taught us? You know, we know it as the Our Father. Part of that prayer goes like this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. 
Now, it's easy to do the will of God when you agree with it. How many here, and I've had this experience in my own life, how many have ever had a collision between your will and God's will? Anybody have that collision? Where you know this is what God wants you to do and this is what you want to do. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's when that prayer is so important. Can I just tell us that you and I, at that moment, are either going to surrender or rebel? And here's what I think a lot of Christians do. They rebel, and then they play a little mental gymnastics game to justify and pretend that they're still doing God's will. And the only person that's being deceived is whom? Themselves. And our hearts get hard, and we think we're okay, and in reality is we're drifting away from God. And You know, I see it over and over again. I've been a Christian for 42 years. I've been a pastor for 37. I've watched this. I can see it in my own life. There will come moments where we have to sit down and say, okay, God, I know what you want me to do, and yet there's a part of me that says, probably even stronger part, that says, I want to do this other thing, and that's the part when we have to make the choice. You see, now we have a will, and we have to decide, not my will, but yours be done. And I'm going to just give you the good news. The moment you say, okay, God, I'm going to do it your way, even though I know I have this other strong desire, I will guarantee you, in hindsight, if you'll do the right road, looking back, you'll go, was that ever the smart thing to do? You will never live with regret doing God's will. But I tell you one thing, you'll always live with regret if you choose your own way because it never turns out exactly the way you think it will because sin, the nature of sin is that it's a deception, it's a lie. It's promising but not delivering. And all turning away from God is idolatry and we become an idolater. And idolatry always brings death and condemnation and judgment into our lives. It's just the nature of it. It means we're worshiping something other than God. We're violating God's, you know, command. We need to understand that. Let me go back here and read this. <clears throat> I'm going to get back here. I want to close with this amazing, two, two things. I want to show you that what happens. Jesus now, he's, he's going back to the temple. And one of the things that he does is he does a prophetic act. You go, what's a prophetic act? He's going to show you what he's about to do. He's going to give you a symbol, a sign of something very powerful. So he's now coming back to the temple. He's hungry, and he sees a fig tree. And he goes over to the fig tree because he sees leaves on it. And anytime you see leaves on it, it's a promise of there's going to be some measure of food. Even if it's the beginning of the, the figs, Jesus was going to eat them, the early figs. And when he goes over there, all he sees is leaves. There's no figs. There's no food. There's nothing to sustain him. And what does Jesus do? He curses the fig tree, and immediately it withers. And the disciples are going, wow, how'd you do that? How do you, how do you wither a tree? You know, it's just, it's so funny how you and I focus in on the wrong things that God's doing. Jesus goes, you don't understand what I'm doing. He says, what I'm doing is showing you that this whole temple system that you guys have been locked into for generations now, it has great promise, but there's no substance to it. It's just leaves. There's no nourishment there. That's the prophetic act he's doing there. And you need to understand that. You say, why is that important? Because a lot of times, you know, we can actually have a form of godliness. We can actually be going through the motions. We can actually look good on the outside, but the inside, there's no substance. We're, we're, we're denying the power of God. 
This is a great concern of mine in my life and in all of our lives that you and I are actually being transformed from the inside out. How critical is that? Matter of fact, this whole series I've been preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, if you're really listening to it, you'll realize how radical it was. What was Jesus really saying? He says, you know what, you can have religion on the outside, but you can be just like the Pharisees, you can be totally dead on the inside. What really changes a person is what has to happen from the inside. Now I wanna close with a story. There was a man by the name of Alfred. He was, it was toward the end of the 19th century, he was a chemist, and one day he read into the, he was looking at the paper and he read his own obituary. How many of us a little bit of shakeup? You know, you, you open the paper and there's your name, your face, and you're dead, according to the paper. You know, anybody think that might get your attention? Well, it obviously got Alfred's attention. I mean, he's reading his own obits, right? What had happened is the newspaper had made a mistake. His brother had died, and instead of putting the story about his brother, they put it about Alfred. And so Alfred was so shaken up by what he had read, and this is what he had read. Alfred Nobel, inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before, but he died a very rich man. And Nobel thought to himself, Alfred Nobel thought to himself, I don't want to be known as the man who destroyed people's lives. And so he took his wealth and made a prize called the Nobel Peace Prize because he wanted to be known for something other than death. He wanted to be known for peace. And this is what I thought is so interesting. Noble said it this way. Every person, he put every man, but every person ought to have this chance to correct their epitaph in, mid in midstream and write a new one. Few things will change us as much as looking at our life as though it's finished. Now, I want you to do something today as we're gonna close right now. <clears throat> I want you to think the last day of your life, you're about ready to stand before Almighty God. What do you wanna be remembered by the people around you, your family, and more importantly, how do you wanna stand before God? Let's stand. Yeah, Mark, you can come and help me now. <clears throat> So right now as we close the service, you know, we've talked a little bit this morning about two responses. We either embrace Christ and become a true worshiper. See, my big concern today is that we think worship is what we're doing on Sunday. Can I tell you, worship is how you live your life. You're either a worshiper or you're not a worshiper. A worshiper is someone who loves Christ who's embraced him, who celebrates him, and does his will from the inside out. Or we can be, you know, like the Pharisees. They were worshiping God in their minds as if they were doing it correctly, but it was all external. And they were using religion as a means to exploit other people. Isn't that sad? I hate to be a Pharisee to stand before God one day to think that I had been spending my whole life ripping people off. Wouldn't that be tragic? See, if you don't have the fear of God in your heart, you can actually carry on like that. You say, well, how can the fear of God come into my life? See, because the wisdom, I'm, I've been actually studying wisdom from the book of Proverbs. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is that I know a lot of things. Wisdom is I know what to do with what I know. 
I actually have, I know how to respond in this situation. I know it's the fitting thing to do. Or maybe you're here, you're just resisting God completely. You're just saying, I'm a rebel. I don't want to surrender to God. But I'll tell you, you're going to have a life strewed with regret all the way through until the very end. You'll be remembered as a person who brought havoc and hurt to yourself and to others. You have a choice. We have a God who created us. You know, you say, well, I'm, I'm an evolutionist. Well, see how that far that gets you. Because ultimately, I think it's a poor argument. We are created by God. We will stand before God. And God has not only created us, he came to redeem us. He came to remake us, to restore us. Why is he doing this? Because he loves us. He's not here to condemn us. He's not here to put us down because we've messed up. God wants to restore our lives. When I came to Christ, I was broken. When I was a younger person, I was broken. I was messed up, I was confused, I was filled with doubt, hurt, betrayal, all kinds of stuff in my life. But I knew I was wrong in places in my life too. And I was amazed that God could forgive me a sinner and accept me and cleanse my life and begin to break things in my life that were wrong, begin to change my heart. He wants to do that for all of us. You know, he, he, that journey doesn't end. He's still doing that in my life today. All these years later, he's still changing, working on things, changing things. It's a journey, folks. With every head bowed this, this morning, this afternoon, early afternoon, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. You say, you know what, Pastor, I want to be changed from the inside out. I want God's Spirit to come in and cleanse me and change my heart and strengthen me and help me to desire to do the will of God so that I will not live with regret. Maybe you're a Christian. Nothing wrong with that. I have my hands up. I want to keep doing this the rest of my life. I just want God's Spirit to keep flooding in my heart day by day, creating in me a new heart, a clean heart, a renewed heart. I want to yield to God's work in my life. So I'm going to raise my hand today. Lord, would you do that for me? Everyone that desires this, just raise your hand. I'm going to pray right now. That's your desire. God's going to see that. Just raise your hand. We're going to pray. So Father... I just thank you right now as we open our hearts to you. You're going to do a work of grace in our soul. We recognize that we cannot change ourselves without your help. We recognize we need to invite your spirit to come into our life. So Jesus, we ask that you would send the spirit of God today to create within us a new heart, a clean heart, a new beginning, a new start in our lives. Help us to desire you, Father. May you create within us a true reverence, a respect, and awe, what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. I just pray that you will just deepen that inside of our lives, that you are going to change us from our hearts out. You're going to change us from the inside out, and that we're going to have new desires to please you and uh, love people and serve others, Lord. You're going to do such a deep work in our life. We want to just thank you for that grace that you're pouring into us today, because we're asking you to. We're inviting you to. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.